please uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning there, let me um, just remind you that uh, chapter and verse divisions, I think I mentioned this last week, chapter and verse divisions are uh, not a part of the original text. They're, they're later uh, to be added to the text, and they're there for a convenience. They're, they're there so that I can say, please turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And, and, you know, as you get more and more familiar with the Bible, you can kind of figure out how it works. Um, but they're later additions to the text. And if you had received this letter, you would have moved right straight from chapter 7 into chapter 8. And there's a real shift, a real shift in tone and tenor as you move from chapter 7 to chapter 8. And so I want to, I want to pick up actually at verse 24 of chapter 7 and then read straight through uh, to the end of verse 14 so that we can maybe begin to get a feel for and a sense of the shift that there is in tone and tenor in these verses. Begin at Romans 7 verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons and daughters, children of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, again, as we come to your word, we I confess that we need your help, we need your spirit, uh, and so come and walk among us by your spirit. You are here, Father and Son, and you are here in the person of your Holy Spirit, and your whole aim in sending the spirit 
is that you might prepare for yourself a fit habitation where you might dwell. And so come by your Spirit's power and do that work. Be preparing us as a more and more fit habitation for your own dwelling. Come, Lord Jesus, walk among us, speak to us, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So again, you, you, you sense that there's a shift in tone as you move from chapter 7 to chapter 8. And, and, and I, I was trying to think of illustrations to sort of suggest how you might think about this. Some of you are familiar with Handel's Messiah, and you know that great piece, that piece from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, that the chorus sings, and, and there's, a real, there's a real shift in tenor and tone in that. You know, as in Adam, all die. Even so, when Christ shall all be made alive, even so, when Christ shall all be made alive. You know, I wish I had a chorus up here to sing this thing. As in Adam, all die. I mean, you, it's in... Handel captured it, right? Handel captured what happens when people come to understand who they were and what God has done for them in Christ. Maybe some of you know Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica Symphony. It's one of the great symphonic pieces uh, ever produced. If you remember, if you know the piece, if you don't, go listen to it because it's fabulous. The second movement is funereal. It's dirgish, you know, it's like, and then the third movement starts. And I looked this up this week. It's a scherzo. And scherzo, this is fascinating. Scherzo comes from a Latin word that means to joke. But the point is, the shift that there is in mood from movement two, which is dirge-like and funereal, to something which is happy and light. And the music is to be played rapidly and with vivaciousness. Go listen to it. It's exactly that kind of shift that there is in tenor and tone and mood as you move from chapter 7 into chapter 8. There is joy in the apostle's voice, if you will, as he cries out in verse 24, 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What has he been doing? He's been working through this whole argument concerning the law. And he's been speaking particularly to folks who believe that the law can save them, that some form of obedience can save them, that being dutiful and following the rules and playing the game is the thing that's going to get you in good standing with God. And the apostle uses himself as the principal example, the prime example of the failure of that system. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It never, ever works. We become too, if I can just a little aside here, just a bit of an application. We become 
too computer-like and too technological in our understanding of the Christian life. We think that it's sort of data in, punch a button, particular result comes out. It's much more complex than that. That's the thing that Paul has been trying to press home to these folks. And you sense the shift in tone, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I serve the law of God. I know that it is good. I know it in my mind. I serve it with my mind. But then there's this phrase that's introduced. But in my flesh, I am powerless, helpless, dead. I am in bondage. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. See, that's where the hope is. That's what we talked about last week, the nature of the hope that we have. And what Paul is doing as he moves on in this argument is he's, he's moving from the burden, the oppressive nature of the law and how law exposes sin and corruption and helplessness and powerlessness. He's moving to focus our attention yet again on Jesus Christ. And now as we transition into chapter 8, now we've been introduced into new life. Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. And in the Spirit, there is liberation. In the Spirit, there is freedom. So let me give you three pegs again to hang this passage on. And we're going to continue to look at this eighth chapter and look at more of the details of it because it is so packed and it is so important. It is such an important passage. But as we sort of move from the grand and the global where we started last week and begin to move down into the details, let me give you three pegs upon which to hang this passage. And if you're a Christian today, if you're a person who has come into contact with Jesus and embraced him, if you're one who has stepped over that line, you've crossed over that line, you've said, yes, I know who I am, I understand at some level what it is that I need, and I lay hold of Christ as the answer, then these things are true of you. These things are true of you. Never ever to be changed. They are true of you. First, you enjoy a new standing, a new position in relationship to God. Number two, you live in a new environment. You live in a new environment. And number three, you have an entirely new orientation, a north star, if you will. A new orientation that continues, yes, with fits and starts, yes, in the weakness and frailty of your flesh, yes, with all of the angst and anguish that you feel, you have a new north star, a new orientation And when you fix your gaze upon that north star and that new orientation, you can make your way. So those three things, a new standing, a new environment, and a new orientation. First, a new standing. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Look again. We looked at it last week. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember what I said last week. Word order matters in the original language, in the Greek. And the first word in the text is no. No condemnation 
therefore. There is. In the English, it is, there is, therefore, now. No, the word no doesn't appear until the fifth word. In the original, it's the first word. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something here. Here's what I want you to notice. You're thinking, yeah, I know, Mike, you talked about this last week. Why don't you move on? Why don't you get past this? Why don't you move on to something else? Here's why. Because Paul is my teacher, and Paul doesn't move beyond it. Paul doesn't move beyond it. What is he talking about here? He is talking about your absolute, complete, and entire acceptance with the Father because of what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Paul can't get away from this basic idea. Show me, Mike. Show me, okay? I'll show you. He brings it up first in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, after he has talked about the problem of sin. What does he talk about? He talks about the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. He talks about the fact at the end of the preceding passage in verse 20 of chapter 3, he talks about the fact that the law can't save us, it can't help us, it can't do anything for us. And so what has God done? God has set Jesus forth as a propitiatory sacrifice, that is, as a substitutionary sacrifice For sinners, he's given us a substitute so that he, God, may be just. He may remain just. How does he remain just? He remains just because not one iota, not one jot, not one tittle, not one little mark of one piece of one letter of one law is compromised or set aside. It is judged when Jesus dies upon the cross. Every violation, every violation that you ever have committed or are committing right now or ever will commit, all of it has been taken from you and placed upon the substitute. See, he can't get away from it. Chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God, you see, he can't get away from it. What is justification? It is God's declaration that you, on the basis of the perfect righteousness and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, are declared innocent and positively righteous. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access into his presence where we stand permanently fixed, never to be uprooted and removed. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul can't get away from the centrality of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross and its implications for you. You never move on to deeper stuff. This is as deep as it gets. You will never, ever tire of hearing that God the Father has done for you in his son, Jesus Christ, what you could not do for yourself. 
And because he has done it, there is no condemnation for you. Paul can't get away from it. You've heard the story, I'm sure. You've heard the story of the the man, the very sensitive, loving, compassionate, caring husband who said of his wife, I told her on the day that I married her that I loved her, and if I change my mind, I'll let her know. And so across all of the years of their marriage, never again did she hear the words, I love you. You see how different God is. God never stops saying to his people, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he will never stop finding new and different ways of saying it. That's what Paul is doing. That's what he's doing. He's saying to his beloved children, I love you, I love you, I love you. God is through the apostle Paul. You see these quotes over on this this quote panel, since we don't have any activities going on, I can fill you with quotes. You see this quote from Gerhardus Voss from a sermon that Gerhardus Voss preached on the text from Jeremiah 31.3, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The best proof that Christ will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. Do you get that? Do you get As a Christian today, the object of the Father's love, that there has never been a nanosecond, never been a moment, never been a length of time at all in which the Father has not loved you. He has loved you in His Son, Jesus Christ, from before all eternity. Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and the Father never tires of communicating in multiple ways that he loves his children. My family was here this last week. I am a miserable man today because the objects of my affection are gone from me. And I spent all week last week exhausting myself because I had one concern, and that was in some small, paltry way to communicate to my beloved daughters and their husbands and even the latest boyfriend and the grandchild in the womb I love you. Do you see how Paul can never get away from this? He can never get away from the centrality of the cross. My friends will never move past wrestling with, grappling with, and seeking to apply to our hearts the wonder of the cross. So you have a new standing in the presence of the Father But beyond that, you dwell in a new environment. Again, look at the text. Look at verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And then verse 9. You, and he's speaking to these Roman Christians, people whom he, for the most part, does not know and has not met. We have that list in Romans 16 of people in Rome whom he does know. But these folks, for the most part, are folks whom he has not met. But they are coming to church, if you will, which, of course, is better said. They are the church, and they are coming to worship, and they are coming to hear the scriptures, and they're coming to hear the gospel. They've responded to Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul takes them at their word that they've embraced Jesus, these who have believed in Jesus, who are Christians. He says to them, you, you who have embraced Jesus are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. You are in Christ, verse 1. You are in the Spirit, verse 9. It's very common for us, rightly so. The Scriptures do it. They do it here in verses 9 to 11. It's very appropriate for us to speak about having Christ in us. Paul does it in these verses, verses 9 and 10 and 11. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, very appropriate for us to do that. But do you know that there are a mere handful of times in which our relationship to God is described as having Jesus or the Spirit in me? Mere handful. But do you know that over 150 times in Paul's letters, The phrases, in Christ, in the Beloved, in the Spirit are used to describe our relationship now to God because of Jesus Christ. The issue isn't really who is in me. The issue is who am I in? Or to use proper grammar, in whom am I? You know that, don't you? You're not supposed to end a sentence with a preposition. Where am I located? That's the question. And Paul contrasts two locations in this passage. You can be and will only be in one of two places, either in the flesh or in Jesus Christ, in the Spirit. There's only only two locations for every person on this planet. You are either in the flesh or you are in the spirit. What is Paul doing here? Well, he's continuing to describe this contrast that was introduced in chapter 5 and verse 12. He's continuing to use these contrasts to show us what it is that has happened to us. We are no longer in Adam The old man has died, you see. And so now we are in Christ. Through the first Adam came sin and death. But through the second Adam come righteousness and life. And we have been disconnected from the old Adam, Romans 6. We have died to the old man. And now we are in Christ if we are Christians. He goes on to draw the contrast between freedom and slavery. Sin, death, and the law, as the law participates with sin and death to imprison us, those are a complex of masters. But we've been delivered from those bondages, delivered from the condemnation of the law, delivered from the power of the law, and we are now 
the servants of a new master. And who is that master? It is Jesus. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. You remember the mixture of metaphors. Paul in those verses depicts the law as a husband, a brutal, oppressive husband. That's what the law does to us. It oppresses us. It imprisons us. Not because it is bad, we've been through this, but because of what is wrong in us and with us. But you see, we've died to the law, Paul says. We have died to that husband, and because that marriage is over, we now, through resurrection, have been brought to newness of life that we might be wed to another husband. And in virtue of that union, we now bear fruit for God. You see, that is what is true of a Christian. You notice what's going on here? I mean, this is just stunning. This was pointed out to me months ago when we were working our way through chapter 5. Do you see? Do you remember? We're still looking for commands, aren't we? Give me something to do, Paul. I'm an American. I'm a pragmatist. I have to-do lists. I'm into efficiencies. I'm into execution. Give me something to do. Do you recall that Paul, up to this point, deep into chapter 8, has given us only two commands? And do you remember where they are and what they are? Romans 6.11. Even so, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive. To God through Jesus Christ. That's the first thing you're to do. You're to think. You're to rethink. You're to keep thinking. You're to keep thinking and thinking and thinking. And reminding yourself and telling yourself and persuading yourself and getting yourself in places where other people will tell you and will persuade you. You are not what and who you think you are. This is who and what you are. You are in Christ Jesus. That's the first command he gives. And the next one comes right after it. Because that is true. Don't go on presenting yourself. But present yourselves to God. Yeah, okay, Paul, but still, give me something to do. You understand what Paul's doing here? How many years have we been in this book? Almost two. We're into the eighth chapter. Do do we understand what Paul is doing here? He wants you to know who you are. What is unalterably true of you. Because everything in you and everything around you screams something very different from what the scriptures scream at. You were in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, in Christ Jesus. That is your identity. That is who you are. That is what is true of you. Now he sets up this contrast using this word flesh. What does he mean by it when he uses this language You were in the flesh, but now you're in the spirit. Well, let's be clear that it's much more than simply flesh and bone. 
It's much more than simply the physical body. It's much more like the word that John uses in his first letter when John says, don't love the world or the things of the world. To be in the flesh is to be implanted firmly in the world, in the world's systems, the world's way of thinking, the world's way of doing things. And what is at the core and heart of being in the flesh and in the world is simply this. To be in the flesh, to be in the world, is to see everything and consider everything entirely disconnected from the ultimate reality, who is God himself. That is what it means to be in the flesh. That is what it means to be in the world. It is to consider everything in complete detachment from the ultimate reality, who is God himself. It's very easy, very easy for us to think of the flesh in terms of the passions of the flesh. That's part of it. Very easy for us to reduce being in the flesh or being in the world to certain kinds of behaviors. But it isn't in the first instance kinds of behaviors. It is in the first instance a way of looking at all of reality. It is a way of seeing To be in the flesh, to be in the world, is to consider, let me say it again, is to consider everything entirely disconnected from the ultimate reality, who is God himself. And here are some features of what it is to be in the flesh. And I will tell you, this isn't fun. Here are some features of what it is to be in the flesh. Look at verses 5 through 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is death. The mind that is set on the flesh is death. The mind that considers all of reality disconnected from ultimate reality, the terminus is death. Not life, but death. We don't have time this morning to elaborate that. But Paul has in view everything that can be sort of circumscribed and encompassed by the word death, whether spiritual death or all the way down to the last great event of every person's life, physical death. To be in the flesh, viewing reality disconnected from God, leads to death. Here's the second thing. The mind that is set on the the flesh, verse 7, is hostile to God. Notice the progression here. It's a very interesting progression. The first characteristic of the mind set on the flesh is death. The second characteristic, this is striking, isn't it, is hostility. Now, wait a minute. Dead people aren't hostile. Dead people are dead. Not in this case. People who are spiritually dead are hostile toward God. Hostile. Not neutral, but hostile. Now here's how you can test that. Here's how you can test that. 
the next time you're with a person who is very clearly, very obviously, self-confessedly a non-believer, say to that person, you are hostile toward God. Say to that person, you hate God. And keep pressing it and see what kind of response you get. Unbelief is not neutral. Unbelief doesn't lack for information. If you go back to Romans chapter 1 and you read where Paul begins his explanation of the gospel, he says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. And notice what he talks about before he goes on to delineate particular behaviors. Why is the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men? Because people, men and women and children, suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. The problem is not information. The problem is not data. The problem is not that God hasn't made his existence and being and character abundantly evident. The problem is human beings born in the flesh, sons and daughters of Adam, coming into this world, come into this world with a mindset. And that mindset is at antipathy with God. It is opposed to God. And when God, you know when you go to the carnival and the little chipmunk pops its head up from the thing and you try to beat it down with the thing, you know, at the carnival, you know that little game thing? When the truth of God pops up, people beat it down. How do I know that? How do I know that? Look at what we did to Jesus Christ. The incarnation of compassion and kindness, mercy and goodness. You will not find a person in the the whole of human history more disposed to love the unlovely, care for those in need, minister to the broken than Jesus Christ. And what does he get? Execution. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God because it is death, because it is hostile. It does not submit to the law of God, verse 7. And it cannot submit to the law of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They are fundamentally incapable of pleasing God. They do not want to please God. They cannot please God. And the reason is, again, we are sons and daughters of our first father, Adam, and we come into this world with a mindset, with a disposition, with an orientation, with an inclination that is contrary to God, against God, hostile toward God. Now, that's not my opinion. That's not my opinion, folks. That is what the scriptures teach. And a passage like this, as I said last Sunday night, 
A passage like this that makes an absolute assault on any notions that people are neutral or that people have free will. The will is not free, my friends. In fact, the only will that is truly free is the will that has been set free by the power of Jesus Christ. People say, well, what about seekers? I know people who ask questions. I I know people who are seeking. We, We say sometimes this person is so close. Let me say something to you. If we're going to be absolutely and perfectly biblical, if we're going to take seriously what the scriptures say, which, which I know, I think virtually everybody in this room wants to do, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, this is what the Bible says about seekers. Romans 3.11 says, There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. And the Bible in a number of places, Luke 19.10 is only one, says this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. There is one seeker and one only. And that seeker is Jesus Christ who comes into the world to seek and to save those who don't want to be found who don't want to be sought, who don't even want to be saved until He in grace and resurrection power and mercy renews them and changes the direction and orientation of their lives. You notice in this passage, Paul begins to use this language of the Spirit, no longer in the flesh but in the Spirit. If you are a Christian today, do you understand what has happened to you? The Spirit of God, the same Spirit which anointed Jesus Christ and who raised Him from death and transformed Him, that same Spirit has operated in your life to raise you from spiritual blindness, rebellion, hostility, and death And bring you into a new kingdom, transferring you from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian today, there is one explanation for why you are a Christian. It is the power of the infinite God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bearing upon you to do for you what He did for Lazarus and for Jesus. So let me say this. I said this last Sunday evening. If you have a friend who is truly seeking, truly asking questions, truly wondering what is going on with this Christianity stuff, do you realize what you're witnessing? You are witnessing a resurrection. You are witnessing the transfer of a person from the kingdom of darkness and death and bondage, a transfer from that kingdom into the kingdom of light and life and hope where the Spirit now reigns 
and where all of reality is properly connected to the one true God. And the Spirit who rules and reigns in that realm is doing in that person what he did in the first moments of the creation, the days of the creation, bringing order out of chaos, filling up emptiness with God's glory, and chasing away darkness by imparting light. That's what happens when a person becomes a Christian. A person is transferred into a whole new environment. Now we have much more to say about this and we'll say much more about it next week in verses 9 through 11. And in connection with that, we're going to elaborate this last point, and that is that we have a new orientation. We have a new north star. Verse 5, those who are in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What does that mean? Simply this, and we'll elaborate it. It means that everything begins to change. It means that things that didn't used to matter now begin to matter. It means that things that before were hated are now loved. Everything begins to change. What does it mean to fix your mind on the things of the Spirit? What does Paul mean when he says those who are in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit? It means a lot, but here is some of what it means. My mind, because of the work of Jesus Christ in raising me from death to life, my mind is set upon that day and that time when I will no longer have to say goodbye to my children. When Romans 8.23 will be forever behind us, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown Inwardly, as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. My mind is set on that. I long for that day like I long for no other. And this last week was a mere foretaste, a mere appetizer of what awaits you and me when Jesus Christ brings that day. And we never have to say goodbye again. That is some of what it means to have your mind fixed upon the things of the Spirit. And I look forward next week to thinking more about it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this this standing that we have. Thank you that we are citizens of a new realm. We live in a different place. Please keep speaking it to us. Please keep telling us this truth. And please, by your grace, would you silence the voices around us? Would you silence the voices within us? Would you silence anything that has anything to do with the flesh? So that when you speak, we hear you. And you alone. Oh, Lord Jesus, love your people and speak with power to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.